and we'll take on for the rest of the summer. So let me read chapter 2, Jonah 2, verses 1 to 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over, my, over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What have I vowed, what, sorry, what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's the word of God. So, in 1969, I was not alive, but maybe the greatest movie ever made was released, and it is this movie. Okay? Remember Adam West and, and Burt Ward? If you're old enough to remember, I'm not that old, but I, I saw the reruns and I love them. However, as wonderful a film as it is, it did have maybe the most ridiculous scene in the history of movies. And it is a scene where Batman is on a rope ladder from a, a Batcopter, and a shark jumps at it and grabs his leg. And as a shark, it's clearly fake. It's just hanging onto his leg, and Adam West is very composed about with this situation. And something happens in the scene that happens in every single Batman episode from this era, and even some today, is that utility belt of his had everything, right? Everything. And he calls out and says, Robin, throw me down the shark repellent. <laughs> and so Robin does this maneuver, and he hands Batman the shark repellent, which he sprays, and the shark leaves him alone, and Batman's fine. Okay, now, why do I bring up this story? First, let me say this. When people say, Carl, your sermons are too intellectual, no. No, you're the problem, not me, because this is Batman. But, but no, but here's where I kind of shoot myself in the foot, because it does get nerdy right here. What is happening there, when this, with Batman's utility belt, how it always, he always has just the right tool to take something that looks like it's impossible to escape and he can escape it. It doesn't matter what it is. And that's actually a literary device. It happens in a lot of movies, a lot of stories, and it's called Deus Ex Machina in Latin, which means the god from the machine. And it gets its name because in the ancient Roman and Greek theater, what would happen is there would be these uh, irresolvable situations. You know, it would be like... Uh, something, you don't know how the, 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 the hero is going to get out of the problem, out of the situation. So what would happen is they would let an actor down on a pulley and, from a machine. And he, would, he or she would always be, usually he, would always be dressed as one of the gods, a Zeus or Apollo or Hera. And they would come just at the nick of time to change everything. And so the god would come down from the machine. And now it becomes, in movies and in stories like in Little Red Riding Hood or even in Harry Potter, this happens, lots of stories, when everything looks lost and then something happens that's really ridiculous even, like comes out of nowhere, like when you watch a movie and it says, uh, how could we possibly breathe underwater? Well, we weren't able to until we developed this one piece of technology, right, conveniently. That is the deus ex machina. 
And the fish in Jonah is the pieces ex machina, the fish from the machine. Because he comes and God sends this fish into the story to take what looks to be an irresolvable situation and reverse it. But the irresolvable situation of Jonah is not that he is drowning. That is not the problem. That's what VeggieTales will say, but it's not the problem. The problem is something far greater. And so the fish, when it's injected into the story and brought in by God, it's serving a far larger purpose, a far larger one, and it actually complicates the story as well. It doesn't just make it simpler. And I'll say this, though. What I will not do today, though I'm happy to do over coffee, is I won't start to explain to you why it's believable that this story is history and not just a myth. And I'll say it very simply. First, many people have done this better than I will. But second, I'll say this. If, if you are the sort of person, and I can be the sort of a person, who wants to get bogged down in whether it was a whale shark or a tiger shark or a sperm whale, then you've already missed the point. In fact, if you are a person who's a skeptic or who's a Christian who struggles with this story because of its historicity, you don't know if it's true, then may I say your faith is misshaped. Because if you believe a God can create all this specified complexity from nothing, but you're not convinced he can keep a man alive in a fish for a few days, you're missing the point. And so we're not going to get into that, though it's a great topic. Instead, what we're going to do is see how this fish jumps into Jonah's life to resolve an irresolvable issue, and then how God does it in all of our lives as well. So how this fish comes up, not literally usually, hopefully, um, in, in our lives, and yet how God is doing, how he brings about through these, these moments, these, this, his intervention in our lives, he brings about three things, our death, our rescue, and our resurrection, as he does for Jonah. So let's get into death here. So how does he bring about the death? What does God want to accomplish through the storm of Jonah? It seems so obvious that it, of what he doesn't want to accomplish, but we don't often talk about it. What he doesn't want is Jonah back on dry land. Because if he did, when the sailors said, hey, let's get him back to dry land, the storm wouldn't have intensified. It would have gone calm. And so what God wants, at least at this point, is not Jonah to be safe on shore. God wants Jonah dead in the water. Let me sustain that for you. It may sound odd. He wants Jonah in the water. Okay? And this is how he's going to kill him. I'll explain how he kills him. Before there's any rescue, before there's any resurrection, death must come. It's a very big biblical, simple statement. But this is there. It's so richly rooted in this story. So first, how is he going to kill him? Water. Right? And think about the imagery of water. I'm going to walk you through just briefly some of the imagery of water in the Old Testament specifically, but it ranges right through. First, in Genesis 1.1, we all know, it's, even if you're a skeptic, you know this, this line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That word deep is the word tehom, and it means deep, the deep. It pops up strategically in the Old Testament. There's lots of words for sea and waters, but tehom is this word for the deep, the primordial deep. And let me just do a little bit of a correction here. Oftentimes I hear people say that what happened at the beginning is God, sh God um, took the, removed the chaos from creation. I don't like that language, and let me explain why. God does not create chaos. So the suggestion is that what happened at the beginning was that God creates this thing, and it's against him. It's rivaling him. It's resisting him. And he has to bend it to his will. That is not what the Old Testament says. It's not what, what this passage says. What it says, and if I can use a, an image that may 
be helpful even if it's imperfect. It's akin to what happens when you take a load of laundry out of the, out of the uh, washer or the dryer and you dump it on wherever you're going to be folding, your bed or whatever. What you have there is a heap of good things. But because they have not been folded and put away and sorted, they're just lacking order. They're formless. They're void. They're not resisting you. Nobody would say, my laundry was resisting me this morning. No. But what happens at the creation is God creates everything. And then he shapes it and he orders it. Because prior, and that deep, the tehom, is disordered. And until he shapes the deep, there can be no life. The only way for life to come into the world is when this disorder is made orderly to allow for human flourishing. Okay? So, and the same idea then pops up in a few chapters later when God sees the world is a sinful mess and he decides, decides to destroy it through a flood. And when he does that, it's an interesting language, isn't it? In verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep, the Tehom, burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And what's happening at the flood is God is saying, before I can have a new world that will hopefully be better, I must kill the old one. I must revert it back to this inhabitable state. So he destroys it with water, and then there's rebirth. There can be no rebirth without death in the water. And then you move on, and I'm skipping things, but it's not an Old Testament survey. You get to Exodus, and when you get to Exodus in 14 and 15 and the Red Sea passage, what happens in the Red Sea? The waters return. Israel it has to pass through the water before there can be freedom. But who doesn't pass through? Egyptians. And in his song, after the passing through the Red Sea, Moses says, uses the word tehom. And he says, the Egyptians sunk in the tehom, in the deep of God. So God is saying, here's another new beginning. Israel, it's a brand new start for you, but you must pass through the water or there'll be no life on the other side. And this happens over and over in the Old Testament and in the New. What is baptism? Pass through the water of death before you're rebuilt, reborn. And so what God wants for Jonah, make no mistake, is he wants him dead. Now I'll explain what's going on more, but he wants him dead. And here is what is interesting as well. Jonah, what he is seeking is he wants to be separated from God. Right? He wants to be apart from God. He wants to know, who am I? What is my life without God? And all humanity is asking the same question. Jonah is not unique. In some ways, he's a representative of all man, humanity. He is running from God. And there's this poet and playwright named D.H. Lawrence who is not particularly Christian, though he wrote a lot, wrote a lot of Christian stuff. Um, he wrote Lady Chatterley's Lover, which is far from Christian, if you know that one. However, he wrote a wonderful little poem called The Hands of God, and here's what he says in it. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it is a much more fearful thing to fall out of them. Save me, O God, from falling into the ungodly knowledge of myself as I am without God. Let me never know, O God, let me never know what I am or should be when I have fallen out of your hands, the hands of the living God. And what he is saying, he is pushing against that thing in him. I know, D.H. Lawrence, I'm not suggesting he's saved. But you see in here the glimpse of a, of a man struggling, saying, I don't want to know who I am apart from you. I don't want to be Jonah. Because he understood it's one thing to want to live apart from God. It's another thing to be living apart from God. And here is where Jonah shows us, I think, something every human being, especially a skeptic, should understand. So if you're not a Christian, if you're struggling, or if you're on the fence, here's what you need to know. Jonah was perfectly fine living when it was him who was walking away from God. 
But the moment God abandons Jonah in the belly, everything comes undone. He's in the chaos, right? He's in not the chaos. He's in this, this primordial nothing. He's apart from God. And at that moment, Jonah realizes, because remember, he has to get alone. Jonah would not pray when the, when, the, when the sailors asked him to pray. But now he's praying. And God knew. In fact, these waters are a mercy. And this raises the question of where is God in suffering? People say God doesn't bring evil. I'm, I, I'm not going to disagree. God does not create evil. But I'll tell you what Jonah felt when he was thrown into water and when he's dying. It didn't feel good. And God was using all of that to make Jonah realize something, to put him to death, to make him realize that he was not king, that without God, he was nothing. That part of Jonah that believed he could flourish without God had to die before he could ever be raised again, rescued, and then spit out on the land. Not just spit out, vomited. It's an important word. So, Jonah knows this. And you know what's funny about Jonah? He notices he's guilty. And you know, he's also aware of how sovereign God is in this. Here's the great paradox of Jonah. Chapter 1, Jonah says, I am guilty, throw me into the sea. But Jonah does not jump into the sea, does he? He has to be thrown. He knows his guilt, but he will not jump in. Because man will not jump in after God. He must be thrown in. And so then the sailors come in. Now they're culpable. So you have Jonah who's guilty, freely chose to run against God. He's guilty. The sailors are now implicated. They are culpable in throwing him in. And yet in the clarity that comes in the fish, what does Jonah say? For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah is unclouded at this point. And he knows for whatever else happened, God threw me in because I never would have jumped in of my own. That's why I had to have other guys do it for me. So God throws him into the sea through mercy. If it wasn't for God doing this and not letting him get back to shore, Jonah would have just continued to be Jonah. But he had to die in this way. Now, he doesn't just say he has to die, but look, it goes even further. He says he's not just in the waters, but he says he is in, the, in Sheol. You notice that? Sheol, and I'll talk about what that is, but he says... Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. So he's in Sheol, the place of the dead. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Meaning he's closed upon... Jonah, though he's not physically dead, feels he is dead. There's no ambiguity in those verses. I am dead. I am in the belly of Sheol. And Sheol is lots we could say. It's not enough to say it's like hell. Because the Jews didn't understand in the same way the New Testament would show what hell is. But here's what we do know at very least about Sheol in the Old Testament. There's no escape. There's no escape from it. And there's also no worship there. Remember the psalmists? Don't let me go into Sheol, because who will worship you in Sheol? Because there's nothing. And so Jonah, at this point, realizes, I am dead. I am in the water. I am finished. He is dead. He is powerless at this point. He cannot be rescued. And this death has to come to Jonah. Until he is broken of the, of the, of the lie that he is something without God, he cannot be saved. And so there's this wonderful, he passed away a few years ago, David Paulison is a teacher, scholar, uh, counselor. And it's, let me say this, it's hard to find a good Christian counselor who isn't a heretic. Let me say what I mean. It's hard because Christian counselors often just try to take secular counseling and put Christian language to it. And as a result, you have to be very weary, very leery when you're looking at uh, Christian counselors. Paulison does a really good job of it. And Paulson at one point says this, the Christian life is a great paradox. Those who die to self find self. Those who die to their cravings will receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. 
they will find new passions worth living for and dying for. If I crave happiness, I will receive misery. If I crave to be loved, I will receive rejection. If I crave significance, I will receive futility. If I crave control, I will receive chaos. If I crave reputation, I will receive humiliation. But if I long for God and his wisdom and his mercy, I will receive God and wisdom and mercy. Along the way, sooner or later, I will receive happiness, love, meaning, order, and glory. And he's right. What he is saying is it's pretty straightforward. If you're a person who says, and I've had friends like this, and we've all been there, even as Christians, we sometimes do this. If you think, I'm gonna, I exist, I want a happy life, I want a good life where my kids are Christians, where we all have our bills paid, where we're all very healthy. If all you do is work to make a life that's happy, you're never going to be happy. And the reason is, you'll be driven mad by anything that is that you deem an interruption to that happiness. I am probably the worst in this room at this. I love, I love a schedule, but when, I'm alone, when I have free time, I don't like to be bothered. And when something creeps in on me and distracts me from what I deem to be something I'm deserving, my happiness, my golfing time, my whatever time, it's difficult for me to not get bitter. Because if I'm not careful, I will make happiness my idol. And it goes further. If you make being loved, I just want to love my family, I want to be loved by my family and my friends. If that is your goal, you're going to be miserable because you're never going to think somebody is loving you the way they ought to love you. My kids should love me more. Don't they know what I've done for them? My husband should love me. Don't they know he is? Does he know what I do for him? And you'll be miserable. If acceptance is what you try to build your life on, you're going to be miserable because you'll be rejected. You'll never be accepted into everything you think you should be. And so you'll just be miserable. And you'll see rejection everywhere. You won't be happy. There will be no peace. And if you really want control, which a lot of us do, boy, you're going to be depressed at, wor- at best. And if at worst, you're going to be broken. Because what will happen is something will come into your life, like an illness that takes away your mobility, that takes away your livelihood, something. And then what are you going to do? It won't just be a little trouble. You'll be broken. What am I without control? And so Paulson is 100% right that Jonah and all of us, if we build our lives on a lie of anything else being satisfactory to us, we will suffer the opposite of it every single time. And so if Jonah isn't cast into the water, thrown into the water by God, because he won't go on his own, and if he isn't dragged all the way down, Jacob mentioned last week the language of down happens all the time. Even though Joppa is north of Jerusalem, he says he goes down to it. Of course, he's thinking geographically. He goes down the hill towards the coast. But it's down from Israel to Joppa, down into the bottom of the ship, down into the water, down to Sheol. And it isn't until he spit up that he goes up. And this is on purpose. We're meant to see that this is Jonah's life being dragged down. He has the freedom to do what he wants, and that's a grace. But he does not have the freedom to run from God when God has called him. And he is even more excited by that. And that's what he cries out for here. So, God wants him dead, spiritually at very least. Now, rescue. So what is Jonah rescued from? And what is he rescued for? First, it's not physical death. If God is trying to only rescue Jonah from physical death, then he has failed, because Jonah will die. Just won't die from water. He won't drown. But he'll die from old age, cancer, a beating, something. Something will get him, smallpox, hunger. And so, this is an important thing for us Christians. God does not save you to give you longer life to disobey him. God doesn't save you just to say, I'm going to do this so you can spend more time being unhappy 
and doing everything that's contrary to God. He always saves with the intent to make you a worshiper. And this is very clear. Jonah, and Jonah sees this. Jonah is, and you're gonna, I'm going to address the fact that Jonah doesn't seem to improve after all this, too. We'll get to that. But look at what he says. He doesn't say, I fell down, you know, I'm in the water, and, oh, Lord, I'm so upset that I'm not going to see my family anymore. I'm so upset I'm going to miss that vacation. I put a deposit down. I'm so upset I can't go golfing anymore. He doesn't say that. What does he say instead? I'm driven away from your sight. And so what Jonah is losing, what he's lamenting, is not physical death, but separation from God. It's a spiritual death, because he realizes in that moment of nothing, that nothing matters, golf cannot save you, family cannot save you, the biggest tragedy, the biggest terror of Israel, as Jacob mentioned last year, which we talked about in our Bible studies, is to be separated from God. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so he's feeling that in this final moment. And what a privilege it is for God to do that to him. It's almost like, you know, it's a wonderful life and Christmas carol when they're given a chance to see what life would be like without them in it or whatever. And in this case, Jonah, what a privilege that he is being. And isn't it funny, as Christians, you call misery a privilege. The misery to see what happens in a life without God, he is given that privilege. Not all of us get it. And what is it specifically he's being called? Not just spiritual death, but it's his self-centeredness. And there's a wonderful French theologian who I love, and he's hard to read sometimes, but he's so brilliant. His name is Jacques Ellul. Read his books. They're wonderful, even though they're a little complicated. He says this, As long as man can invent hopes and methods, he naturally suffers from the pretension that he can solve his own problems. He invents technical instruments, the state, society, money, and science. He also invents idols, magic, philosophy, spiritualism, and all these things give him hope in himself that he can direct his own life and control his destiny. They all, sorry, me, they, they all cause him to turn his back on God. As long as there is a glimmer of confidence in these things, sorry, in these, these, sorry, as long as there is a glimmer of confidence in these means, man prefers to stake his life on them rather than handing it over to God. And so, he is right again. Jonah needs to be stripped, as we all do. In fact, if you are a human being, which I, most of you are, um, <laughs> you are either going through trouble or you have gone through trouble. Perhaps you've gone through chronic trouble. And I'm saying this very clearly. It is being done to rouse you to the fact that you're running away from God. You think the evil is there to punish you. The evil is there not to punish you. God uses the evil to say, Wake up. See, these things, I, you know I don't like? I don't like that phrase that says, if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. That's not true. At least not in a noble way. I know many people who are not Christians, and some who are, who suffer, and they're not better after they suffer. They become more bitter after they suffer. Suffering has no inherent value at all. But suffering that is suffered in God's presence, for God's sake, that's redemptive. And so... God brings this to you to try to wake you up, not to make you stronger, but to see how weak you are and how much you need him. That's the point. That's what he's been doing all along in all parts of our lives. And Jonah knows this, right? See, here's the great part about Jonah, much like us. He knows, as he's going to show in chapter 3, he knows that God is never apart from sinners. He knows that God loves sinners and will not abandon them. The problem is Jonah is only now realizing he's one of those sinners, up until this point, he thought it was all these other people. And now he's realizing, woe to me, I am undone. He's the problem. And this causes a great change in him. And, his, and in this weakness, 
It's, my, it's amazing what he does, right? And his weakness, why is he saving him? Remember I said earlier, he, causes, he wants Jonah to be a worshiper. And you see it right in Jonah's words. I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall go golfing tomorrow. No, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. But with, I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Will pay. Jonah is saved to make him a worshiper. John Piper, I don't have it up here, but he once, not once, when he said it, but he said, missions exist, evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Worship is what God is trying to make out of all of humanity. He's trying to bring us back to the way things were in the garden, which is worshiping. And so he's doing the same thing. And Jonah, in this moment, is feeling that. He understands it. I have nothing if I am not a worshiper of Yahweh. And now why is he rescued? Let me say this as well. It's, a, it's something of a Jewish paradox that it gets resolved in the New Testament. Why does... Here's Israel. All at once, Isaiah and Job say that I cannot escape Sheol. No one gets into Sheol and gets out. There's no exit hatch. Once you're there, you're done. There's nothing in Scripture in the Old Testament suggests directly that God says, I will take you out of Sheol, at least that he can or will as a regular practice. However, all through Scripture in the Old Testament, you see the great men and women of the Bible talking as if God can save them out of Sheol, out of some kind of hope. And so you read, and you guys would know some of these. First, I love Psalm 139. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And you see, here is the start of this hope that Jonah has and that Job has, is this. The place of the dead, the netherworld of Sheol, and even our modern, our understanding today of hell from the New Testament, God is not absent in those places. I know people say that often. I have to understand what you mean. God is not absent in hell. Separation from God occurs, but God is Lord of all. He doesn't surrender lordship anywhere else. God is there. In fact, it's all through Scripture. Even if I go to Sheol, you're there. We cannot escape the presence of God. We cannot. And this is that weird paradox. The Jews say, I cannot escape. And yet, because you're there, there's hope because you're a merciful God. Exodus 33, Exodus 34, I, am, I, I will give mercy to whom I, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. His choice. Right? I am, I am, slow, to, I am slow to anger, rich in compassion and mercy. And so, is, so you have these saints in the Old Testament clinging to this hope. Even though I'm dead, there's hope. In fact, look at how beautiful Jonah says it. Or Job, Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. He doesn't, there's no reason for him to think that there's going to be him ever seeing God again. But he does. He clings to the hope. And Jonah does the same thing. I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. What's interesting, and it's a side note, in this chapter, in this whole psalm, the prayer of Jonah, he only speaks of Sheol in the past tense, of what it did. But he only speaks of his worship as what he will do, because he knows death is behind him now, because God will rescue him. And that's an important move as well. And why does God do it? Mercy mercy. I know we often say you have to repent before you're saved, and that's whole, entirely true, but it's not a formula, right? Because if you look at the formula, sometimes in our little Bibles when we're, we're trying to evangelize people, we have a little repentance prayer, and then you sign it to make you a Christian, right? It's ridiculous. In Scripture, you don't see a formulaic way to repent. You see Israel in Exodus 2 crying out 
in the burden of slavery. But they don't repent. They don't say, Lord, we're in slavery because we've disobeyed the covenant and so on. No, they just cry out in their pain. Isaiah, not Isaiah, uh, Elijah in Kings 19, when he is near death, he doesn't repent. He just, he's angry. And he cries out in his death, I'm going to die too. You've left nobody. I'm going to die. And Jonah, he doesn't cry out and articulate his repentance. I've, I've, these are my sins and I'm sorry. No, what happens in most people when a crisis like this comes is you weep and you cry out. And I'll say this, if you know anybody who's been an alcoholic, you know they groan in misery because they know exactly that they're accountable, they're responsible for their own misery. And they also know they cannot fix themselves. And they don't articulate it that way, but that's what comes out. And they know it. And Jonah, we know, knows he's a sinner who deserves death because he tells the sailors that. He says, I have done it. And it says afterwards that he had told them that he was running from his God. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he deserves death. And he cries out, repentance at its bare minimum is this. I cannot do it. I deserve what I'm getting. God, you're the only hope I have. The thief on the cross. He doesn't have a robust theology. He says, I'm getting what I deserve. But if you want me in paradise, I'll be there. Right? And that's, this is what Jonah, I think, is doing. But he is not saved because of repentance. He is saved because God hears it and says, I will act. Because God is gracious and merciful and compassionate. And so, God wants him dead, but he also wants to rescue him after killing him, which I know is weird. And now we move to the last part, which is resurrection. And again, that word vomited is important. I brought it up. You know, there's a lot of words in Hebrew for spitting for throwing, for casting. They've used the word hurl three times of hurling the cargo, hurling Jonah, hurling a, a storm onto the sea. So many words, and yet the word vomit is there to suggest that this whale needs to then be somehow convinced and provoked to spit up the dead man, almost as if the belly of death needs to be undone somehow. And so when this happens, though, there's a, another scholar, Rosemary Nixon, says this, now, he faces not oblivion, but God. Not security, but challenge. Not death, but life. Surely, this is a new beginning for a born-again prophet. And there's no doubt about it. The imagery is clear. Death, rescue, resurrection. A new start for Jonah. But we have this problem I mentioned earlier, which we all know if you've read the book of Jonah. He doesn't seem a whole lot better in chapter 3. He has this moment that he seems to be repentant, and you think, great, a change is coming. And then he's arguably more of a jerk in chapter 3. And he still resists God. He's still bitter. He's still angry. In fact, the book ends with him still bitter and angry. And so let's, this has caused some scholars, unfortunately, to be a little too cynical of, jo of, of Jonah and say, he's not even really repentant. He's, just, he's just, just talking out of his distress. I don't think that's fair. And I think it shows a lack of understanding of how we are all saved. Anyone here perfect after they were saved? Anyone here have all of their sins, all of them miraculously, not, not just gone by the blood of Christ, but conquered in your own flesh? No. In fact, some of us can become worse because we become so proud of being saved because we chose God and we're so clever to see him when everybody else doesn't see him that we become arrogant jerks. And so what we're seeing here in Jonah is the, the walk of, again, a patient and merciful God, which is why the series is called Mercy for Sinners. God saves us and we continue to sin. And this is why the Christian life is one of sanctification. It's a big word that means getting to be more like God. And he does it in us. He works in us through his spirit, through the stuff we go through. As he's doing with Jonah, he is now 
discipling Jonah. He's now nurturing and growing and maturing Jonah through his walk, and we're going to see that. It's hard, but you see God is unrelentingly patient with Jonah and with you. And this is, I think, absolutely vital for us to see. And I'll give two bits of, of advice here or encouragement. I don't know. One, actually, one encouragement, one warning. Because people often come and say, uh, on both sides, sometimes they're struggling, and they say, I know I'm a Christian, but I'm sinning a lot. Like, I can't kick this sin. Am I saved at all? Like, why is it I can't kick this? What's the problem? Am I, am I even just saved, or am I just playing? And then on the, that's the more humble side. Now, the other side of it is when people come to me and say, I can't believe you let that person serve here at Redeemer because they haven't repented. They're not saved. If you look at their, there's no fruit in their life. And there's an assumption, there's two assumptions here, right? So let me address an encouragement first. And the encouragement, I think, is this. It comes from Richard Baxter. Now, he is an old Puritan. He writes like an old Puritan. So I'll read it, and then I'll have to explain it because it's kind of weird. But let me explain because it's so good. Remember what a comfortable evidence you carry about with you that your sin is not damning while you feel that you love it not but hate it and are weary of it. Scarce any sort of sinners have so little pleasure in their sin as the melancholy or depressed or so little desire to keep them and only beloved sins undo men. What he's saying is so good. And I've used this, if you've heard me say this to you privately, it's because I got it from Richard Baxter. You know who doesn't worry about their sin? Unsaved people. They don't. So if you're a person who's concerned that your life is not God-honoring and you're struggling so you can't kick a habit, you can't get up in the morning when you wanted to, you can't parent the way you want to, you can't stop gossiping the way you'd like to, I agree, that's hard. We want to try to help conquer that where we can and pray for that for, for God to help. But the very fact that you're concerned with it is evidence that God is in you saying it's unacceptable and you have to work on it. So I say that as an encouragement. And if you're a non-believer and even now you're feeling those things, understand it's God already at work in you. And so there's an encouragement. You're not perfect, and you won't be this side of heaven. And so that's probably a better marker. Are you lamenting? Are you worried about your sin? Well, that's what Baxter is saying. Remember the comfortable evidence you carry about with you that your sin is not damning while you feel you hate it. That you sin, but while you hate the sin, while you abhor the sin, while you don't want it, and yet you do it, that is evidence that you have not been damned. It's wonderful. But let me say this as a warning. Just because... You think you hate sin doesn't mean you do. And this is scripture. It's not me. Look at what scripture says. Sometimes people are not concerned enough about their sin. And you see a wonderful paradox in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 34 and 37 say this about Israel in the wilderness. They repented and sought God earnestly. Good. Two verses later, their heart was not steadfast toward him. See? So they look and they appear like they're against sin, but they don't. They're not against it. They keep falling back because they're not. They love this. It's not, it's not even a matter of, of saying that they slip into it by accident or they're just weak in their flesh. No. It says very clearly, their heart was not steadfast towards him. They weren't committed to him. And then in the Pharisees, the Pharisees are, I mean, who hated sin more than a Pharisee? And yet, Luke 16, they were lovers of money. They seemed to hate sin, but they didn't. And there's people, every church, every redeemer, every family, has people at the church that are vehement when they see sin. They can't stand it. They send emails, they petition, but their lives are sometimes a mess. And if that's you, just a, just a warning. It's one thing to show a hate for sin. It's another thing to live out that hatred for sin in the humility and mercy of seeing how everybody struggles in sin. And so I offer that. Now let me say, we'll close here. Jonah. 
How do we do this? How do we actually become people who grow and we learn from Jonah not to mock him and say we're better, but how do we say, Jonah, I'm with you. I am just as miserable as I was, I feel like, 10 years ago, and I want to get better. How do you get better? Well, we have a supremely better opportunity than Jonah did. And the language, I wish I, I didn't, for some reason I left the slide out, but uh, Jonah had a promise and we have the reality of something. Jonah had, he's a contemporary probably of Hosea and Amos, Isaiah, depending on the timing, there must have been some overlap there. And in Isaiah 25, it says, he, meaning God, will swallow up death forever. Okay? He'll swallow up death forever. He will, meaning future tense. God's coming. It'll happen. Paul then in Corinthians, I didn't put it here, I don't know why I didn't make a slide of it, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, quotes this, but he changes it brilliantly. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Is. So you see, Jonah and Job and all these saints could say, I don't understand it. There's no reason why I should be saved. I have nothing. I don't have anything except for this God who's merciful. So I'm going to cling to that, I guess. We live on this side of the resurrection, and we see that something did happen that swallowed up death, and that is Christ. That is the cross he came. And so when you and I fail as Christians, when you struggle, when you stumble, you should lament it. You should take it seriously. You should want to get that sin out of your life. But there, there is no room in your life for despair because despair would mean there's no hope. But we instead say, I have sinned, but praise God that he has swallowed my sin forever. He's undone death. Revelation 1.18, that Christ has gone down into the belly of Hades, he says in the Greek. And he has punched a hole in it and come out with the keys. That there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that hope, that, that gratitude we have means I'm now free to screw up. I'm free as your pastor to make mistakes. Not that I do. No, see, I make so many mistakes. And yet, if you're around, you're going to notice I'll continue to go forward and press because I real, I'm trying so hard and there's people helping me to realize my identity is not in my losses. I can fail and it doesn't affect my eternity because I love Christ and he's loved me. Actually, that's more important. My faith doesn't save me because of the quality of my faith. It's the object of my faith that saves me, Christ. He saves me. And that hope we have. So if you're a Christian, be committed to putting yourself to death because he is near at hand and he will help you. If you're a skeptic, Look at the trials in your life. You think they're making you stronger? They're not. They're trying to show you that you're weak. But only through that weakness. Salvation will only come in your weakness. He cannot save somebody who doesn't think they need to be saved because they, they won't even entertain it. Embrace the stuff he has put into your life and ask why has he done this. And of course the answer is always the same. For his glory and for your redemption. Let's pray.